Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, Senior Counsel at the Calfee Law Firm. And on today's show, we'll review some recent recommendations from multiple SEC commissioners on how to improve access to capital. For our interview segment, we have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Mark Kim, CEO of the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board, about the exciting developments happening at the MSRB, particularly on the technology and data side of the industry. Finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another edition of the Outtake segment, where we take a look at a Ponzi scheme and related emergency enforcement that, unfortunately for the investors involved, wasn't something that could only be made in Hollywood. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, recently SEC commissioners offered recommendations to improve access to capital for underrepresented founders and investors. At a meeting of the Small Business Capital Formation Advisory Committee, Commissioner Lee stressed the difficulty associated with developing concrete solutions to improve access to capital for underrepresented and marginalized communities. She suggested the SEC evaluate how its regulations impact these communities including, one, whether there are disproportionate costs to such communities from a given policy, and two, how to determine if such communities are benefiting from SEC regulations. She went on to indicate that the SEC should incorporate its Office of Minority and Women Inclusion into the rulemaking process and include in its economic analysis an evaluation of the costs and benefits of its regulations on varying segments of the population. She said that the SEC should include in its economic analysis an evaluation of the distributional consequence of policymaking. She finally suggested that the Division of Economic Risk and Analysis um, in the Office of the General Counsel should revisit their regulatory guidance on economic analysis and consider some modifications, such as enhancing the identification of the benefits of the SEC's regulation that are difficult oftentimes to quantify. Separately, Commissioner Peirce recommended that the SEC, one, provide greater flexibility in assessing who qualifies as an accredited investor, two, create a framework for finders, both of those items we've talked about numerous times on this show before as being, we think, really positive steps for the industry, and the third thing Commissioner Peirce suggested was to develop a streamlined exemption for micro-offerings. She finally stated that a qualifying venture capital fund exemption may be more impactful if such funds were permitted to have over $10 million in assets, which is not currently allowed. So what are the takeaways here? First, I would certainly applaud Commissioner Lee's efforts to identify how the SEC's rulemaking process disproportionately impacts underrepresented or marginalized parts of society. Unlocking opportunity for more diverse sources of capital also unlocks a much greater capacity for diverse founders and investors, and ultimately, everyone benefits. The other key takeaway here, at least in my mind, is there is a dichotomy that often exists in our industry. One of the SEC's core missions, if, if not its number one mission, is to protect investors. This is an incredibly valuable mission, and many of the folks listening to the show right now would likely serve as some of the biggest cheerleaders of this concept. And yet, the greater the rules are to protect investors, those same rules often impose much more significant requirements on small businesses that are seeking to raise money. And so you have this immovable, unmistakable uh, trade-off between prioritizing investor protections and the ability for companies to raise capital. And it's simply impossible to do both, to prioritize both at the same time. And that's not to say that we should prioritize raising capital against all investor protections. Of course not. That's for the SEC and the commissioners and other to best decide how to prioritize investor protection. I think the important thing to keep in mind here is that we should make sure to uh, compare those things against each other in a way that carefully weighs the costs and benefits. It doesn't make a lot of sense to impose much greater restrictions on private placements and then at the same 
time wonder why many small companies are finding it really, really hard to raise money, especially when many of those same companies are coming out of the worst pandemic in the last hundred years. As we move to the interview section of today's show, we have our first guest ever from the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board joining us today, and I am incredibly excited to welcome him to the show. Mark Kim is the CEO of the MSRB. Prior to his current role, Mark served as the Chief Operating Officer uh, from 2017 through 2020. He also served on the Board of Directors at the MSRB from 2015 to 2017, where he was a member of the Finance uh, and Steering Committees and chaired the Audit Committee. Before joining the MSRB, Mark was the CFO for the District of Columbia Water and Sewer Authority. In this role, he was responsible for a, an award-winning green bond program, which included the first third-party certified green bond issued in the U.S. and the first 100-year green bond issued globally. This groundbreaking transaction has since been replicated in several cities across the country. And um, in addition to that role, he's got a, a wide breadth of depth and de depth and experience in other capacities as well, having also served as the deputy comptroller for the city of New York, uh, an investment banker at Goldman Sachs and UBS uh, at Goldman Sachs, UBS and Fidelity Capital Markets. He received a Ph.D. in public policy from Harvard University a law degree from Cornell, and a bachelor's from Northwestern. He's also a member of the New York State and D.C. bars. Mark, thank you so, so much for joining us on today's show. Very happy to have you. Patrick, thank you so much for inviting me. This is a pleasure for me, and I'd also like to thank NSCP for sponsoring this podcast series and allowing me an opportunity to share the update about the MSRB's priorities with your listeners. Absolutely. No, we we are. Uh, it, the pleasure is all uh, on our side of the table. And in fact, I, I mentioned in the intro there a little bit about your background, and I, I wanted to kind of specifically call it out because of some of the items I know we're going to talk about today and how the MSRB is really forward looking <laughs> um, and, and really, I think, doing many, many things that are not only setting it up for success right now in the present, but really looking towards the future. And it's that kind of, again, kind of that uh, you're, that type of approach where I, I can just tell that uh, you are a person, a leader who doesn't necessarily shy away from breaking new ground and identifying new areas of opportunity that I think is really, really exciting for the MSRB. So. So anyway, maybe let's get into it. Speaking of the MSRB, I think for some of our listenership, uh, one thing I would love to do just at, at the top of the show um, is maybe if you would uh, maybe talk a little bit about what is the MSRB and um, what is its mission? Terrific. I think that's the right place to start. And, and thank you for your kind introduction. I think our job as regulators is to get regulation right. And that means not only regulating for today, but being ready to regulate for tomorrow. So I think it's critical for us and for our role as regulators to anticipate where this market is going to go. In terms of our core mission, it rests on three pillars. And those pillars are our rules, our technology, and our data. And when I was preparing to step into the role of CEO late last year, I went back to the Exchange Act, which is what created us. And when, when Congress passed the Exchange Act they and established the MSRB back in 1975, my reading of that act makes very clear what Congress intended the MSRB to do. The first pillar are rules. I think everyone is very familiar. As a regulator, our job is to write rules, but that's not the only thing that Congress mandated us to do. Reading the Exchange Act, Congress also mandated the MSRB to establish information systems that promote a fair and efficient market that facilitate capital formation. And those information systems is what I mean by our core pillar of technology. It's the technology systems that undergird the market. And then our third pillar really came about about 10 years ago when the MSRB launched one of its technology systems called EMMA, which many of your listeners may be familiar with. When we did that, 
The SEC designated the MSRB as the industry's sole repository for data. And when they did that, the MSRB's third mandate came into place, which was focused around data. So when I think about my role as CEO, my focus is on advancing the MSRB's core mission, which is rests upon our rules, our technology, and our data. Yeah, no, that's... That's fantastic background. And it, it is it, it is kind of reminiscent of something that I remember from from law school, which is, you know, when when you can't find the answer anywhere else, maybe go, go back to the original rule or statute. Right. I, I had to do that quite often as I would try to probably go down a rabbit hole on on, on some particular issue. But no, that's that's very helpful. Well, so then let, let's dig in a little bit to that gives a nice foundation for, uh, um, you know, what is the MSRB? But w- what are some things that you all are really focused on now? What are some, you know, strategic priorities that you have identified just, you know, from a, a rulemaking perspective or some other type of perspective of, of things that are going on right now? Let me start with our first pillar around rules, because I think, again, your audience will be most familiar with with our rule book. I view our role not only just to write the rules that regulate this industry, but also to facilitate the understanding of our rulebook and ultimately compliance with our rules. So we have a much broader responsibility than just writing the rules. And our regulatory focus over the coming years is going to be on facilitating compliance with our rules. And in particular, we have launched an initiative to focus on the body of interpretive guidance that the MSRB has published and stands behind our rules. Many of your listeners are familiar with our G rules, which um, there are about 45 G rules on the books. But you may be less familiar with the fact that we have about 250 pieces of interpretive guidance that stands behind those G rules. And the MSRB had a previous practice where once we issued a piece of interpretive guidance, we would always keep it on our books, even if that guidance was uh, superseded by subsequent guidance, even if the rule text had been subsequently amended, or even if the rule had been rescinded. It just was a quirky historical practice that we would keep interpretive guidance on our rule books. So what you will find today is that you may see some pieces of interpretive guidance that are 10, 20, 30 years old in our rule book, and it's confusing. And so in order to facilitate compliance to modernize our rule book, we are going back to focus on that body of interpretive guidance and to make sure that it is still relevant, that it is still necessary, and that it reflects current market practices. Another aspect that's really important that compliance officers will appreciate is making sure that it is crystal clear in our rulebook what interpretive guidance has been filed with the SEC, because there's a very, very big, important distinction between interpretive guidance that has been filed and interpretive guidance that has not been filed. For interpretive guidance that has been filed with the SEC and approved by the SEC and gone through a public comment period, that interpretive guidance has the same force and effect as federal securities laws and our rules themselves. It can be used as a defense in enforcement cases and so on. Interpretive guidance that has not been filed with the SEC does not have that same weight and force and effect. It is in effect staff opinion and uh, cannot be relied on in an enforcement case. And so our rule book doesn't make clear which pieces of interpretive guidance have been filed and subject to public notice and comment and approved by the SEC, and which are just pieces of interpretive guidance issued by the MSRB to the industry. So we are focusing on modernizing our rule book, in particular, looking at our body of interpretive guidance and refreshing it and making sure that it will help industry professionals understand our rules and ultimately comply with our rules. So that's our big focus on our rule book. Yeah. What a fantastic initiative. And I know for all of those, you know, industry participants who um, who, you know, those rules would apply to, man, what a huge benefit for them ultimately to be able 
to understand, especially, you know, with the interpretive guidance and other aspects of that. Oh, wow, this is something that I can absolutely rely on versus, oh, this might be a best practice or what we're recommending or kind of, you know, the, the best thinking from the MSRB, not necessarily something that, that they would be able to plant a flag on. So. Absolutely. And in fact, our very first recommendation to our board, which our board approved, was retiring 15 pieces of interpretive guidance that we felt were no longer necessary. Um, they were either irrelevant or they were not needed because of changes in our market since they were initially issued. And so now those pieces will be retired. They will come out of our rule book. They will still be accessible, but more as a historical archive than as binding precedent. So that's the kind of clarity that we seek to provide the industry. Yeah, I can definitely, I think, speak for many of my compliance officer and uh, legal practitioner colleagues when I say whenever there are rules taken off of the books that we no longer have to worry about, we can like let those <laughs> fall out of our mind. Uh, that is a welcome, welcome you know, benefit. So thank you for that. Well, so you talked about the, the rules and being one of the kind of strategic priorities that you all are focused on. But one of the things that I found mo most interesting in doing a little bit of background ahead of, of our interview today is on the technology front of what the MSRB is doing. And so I guess a question for you that, that really I think would be uh, enlightening for a lot of our listeners. Talk to me about how, you know, the, the MSRB even, you know, kind of, I would say like, you know, optically, but also probably in practice is just as much a technology company as it is a regulator. Is that accurate? Absolutely. And when I've said that in the past and described the MSRB as a technology company that regulates this market, I often get a lot of, you know, kind of confused looks. Um, but that is an accurate description of the MSRB. As I mentioned, going all the way back to the reasons why Congress created us, it is to provide technology solutions to the industry. And let me just give one example of, of um, the types of technology infrastructure that we provide to the industry. It results from MSRB rule G14, which is our trade reporting rule. Under that rule, in order to comply with that rule, within 15 minutes of any time a municipal bond is bought or sold, it must be reported to the MSRB through our technology systems, through our trade reporting system. It takes the MSRB about 60 seconds to process a trade, and then we turn around and make that information transparent to the market. In order for price discovery to happen, in order for you to see where did the last bond trade at what price and am I getting the right price for my bond, it is a critical function that we provide to the industry and the market can't work without the technology that we provide. So it is a very, very important part of our core mission. I'm certain that your listener, many of your listeners will be surprised to learn that of the approximately 116 staff that we have at the MSRB, over half, over 50% of our staff are in IT. Wow. I would have had no, no idea about that. That's, that's crazy. In fact, we have more software engineers writing lines of code than we do securities lawyers writing rules for the industry on staff, which is why I think it's fair to say that the MSRB is a technology company that regulates the municipal securities industry. We spend actually almost 50% of our annual operating budget is in IT as well. So technology is a very, very core and central part of who we are and what we do and what our role is in this market. Yeah. And the way that you're describing a lot of the kind of blocking and tackling that the MSRB is doing on a day-to-day -day basis, it seems like really you, you are providing the technology infrastructure for the entire, for, for all municipal advisors. Would that be a, a fair statement? Absolutely. There are, of course, many other 
um, technology systems and, and and other companies that are providing important solutions to the industry. But I would agree with you that the MSRB has a very critical role in providing some of the ins- essential infrastructure and some of the essential plumbing, if you will, <laughs> right. for, for the industry. It is you know, kind of very off the radar and not something that you really see or think about, but but it's important to know that it's there and that it's yeah. part of our job to provide that plumbing for the industry. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's actually probably a good segue in th- thinking about kind of infrastructure, because I know another major item that you all have recently gone through that I imagine many, many of our compliance professionals and other kind of RI that they're you know RIA firms uh, that they support, their broker dealer firms that they support, their municipal advisors that they support, they are also in the thick of what I imagine is a um, uh, having challenges with data and data retention and what to do with what's been you know years if not decades worth of information. The MSRB um, recently, you know, started or pardon me, completed a cloud migration. I just think it would be so beneficial for our listeners to hear what was that process like for you all? What were some challenges that you faced along the way and maybe some some best practices or kind of lessons learned from from that? Sure. This is um, such an interesting journey that the MSRB has had to the cloud. And let me start just by saying that I really applaud our board for its vision and its leadership in recognizing and embracing the role of technology in advancing our mission. So our board has made a strategic investment to modernize our technology systems. And this journey to the cloud is really taking part in two steps. The first part of the journey was to actually migrate to the cloud, get our technology systems and get our data into the cloud. And that first part of our journey, I'm really happy to report, we successfully completed our cloud migration last October in the middle of this pandemic. That cloud journey took us about two years, and it cost the MSRB about $7.5 million to do that. So for an organization with a $40 million budget like the MSRB, this was not an insignificant initiative. This was a major, major investment. And it's just the beginning of our journey. This was part one. We still have part two to do, which I'll describe in a minute. But part one, that cloud migration was really critical for the MSRB really for two reasons. One strategic and one I'll say is more tactical. The strategic reason why it was important for the MSRB to embrace cloud computing was for an effort to stay relevant, to be able to evolve with the way that our market is evolving towards greater electronification of trading and so on. There, In order for the MSRB to stay relevant, to be able to regulate for the future to be able to continue to provide the technology plumbing for the market, we had to modernize our technology systems. And we recognize that the future is in cloud computing and we needed to be in the cloud. So that was really the strategic driver of why we made this investment to migrate our systems and our data to the cloud. The second reason is really more tactical or operational in nature. There are a lot of advantages to cloud computing and we wanted to take advantage of it. They include increasing and improving our system performance, um, increasing the reliability and the availability of our systems. Everyone is aware of cybersecurity and the risk of cybersecurity and the compliance concerns around that. We feel very strongly that we can improve our security by moving to the cloud, by moving our systems and our data to the cloud. So there were a lot of what I will call kind of tactical operational benefits of um, making this investment and and migrating us to the cloud from a, a system availability, resilience, security perspective. But it wasn't easy. And there were definitely some bumps in the road. And 
for some of the listeners whose organizations may be may, may have uh, done the, a cloud migration or are in the middle of a cloud migration or are thinking about a cloud migration, um, there are definitely some lessons learned that I'd be happy to talk about. And, and, and two in particular that I would say still resonate with me and that were really critical to this to the success of the MSRB in terms of our own cloud migration. The first was the importance of establishing a business case. Why are you going to go to the cloud? And I talked about our strategic and our tactical reasons for for doing that. And it took us, I would say, almost a year of planning before the board made a decision to green light the project. Wow. That year, we spent a whole year developing the business case and validating the business case for what are the reasons, what are the drivers that require us to make this cloud migration. And one of the biggest lessons learned that I wanted to share with your listenership is you'll notice in all the reasons that I said for migrating to the cloud, saving money wasn't one of them. And in fact, we haven't saved money yet by moving to the cloud. And that wasn't one of the goals, express goals that we were judging our success in terms of migrating to the cloud. Um, There is an opportunity for cost savings by migrating to the cloud. But I would caution your listeners who are embarking on a cloud journey not or to think very hard before making cost savings the primary reason for going to the cloud. I have heard many other uh, companies that have gone to the cloud have gone for that reason only, and they have been disappointed. So, um, so, so this is interesting to me because you're right. And I would love to dig into this a little bit because you do hear companies talk about all the time, and or, or at least when whenever somebody starts with the business case, I think an immediate reaction to that is to immediately think about money or cost, yeah. right? As part of the business case. So if it wasn't saving money, then what was the primary business case or the primary driver to move to the cloud? Absolutely. And and I don't want to say that cost savings and operational efficiency wasn't important. It It, it absolutely was. And we, in our business case, we did calculate and establish and project a return on investment and a break-even point. So that $7.5 million that we spent in order to get us to the cloud, we do expect to realize that back in savings. The MSRB's internal break-even point, according to our own projections, is around five years from now. We expect to save it. So cost savings are important. We do expect to realize them, but that really wasn't the driver. It was more the other reasons that I spoke about. It was about positioning the MSRB for the future, being able to take advantage of the power of cloud computing and also new technologies um, like artificial intelligence, machine learning that I'd love to talk about in a couple of minutes when when we move on to data, but the cloud is where innovation is happening. That is where the industry is focused on. That is where you're seeing new tools, new products, new services coming to market. And you don't have the constraints of fixed capacity within your data centers that are holding you back. The MSRB was approaching the limits of um, our our data storage capacity and our computing capacity without having to make major investments in upgrading our technology. So rather than doing that in a legacy system, we decided that we would invest for the future and make this migration to the cloud. That is, um, I, I'm, thank you for that unique perspective. And I, I do think that that will resonate with a lot of folks um, a lot of compliance officers that are out there who oftentimes feel even sometimes inside their own organizations that they have to add credibility or try to justify the value of what they're bringing to the organization in, in other ways where, of course, there's a cost to have really good compliance in the way that there would be a cost to move over to the cloud. But ultimately, have being able to be in the cloud, as you say, to embrace new technologies 
to be able to continue to innovate moving forward. And long term, like you said, the return on investment of that migration is going to be incredible. The same way that I imagine lots of compliance officers would argue the return on having a really good compliance program is going to add exponential value to your organization long term. Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more, Patrick. And in fact, I view techno our technology systems as the primary way the industry complies with our rules. And so when a broker dealer is trying to comply with MSRB rule G14 on trade reporting, the way that they do that is by interfacing with our technology and submitting their trade reports. When a state or local government issuer is complying with its obligations under SEC rule 15C212, the way that they evidence compliance with that rule is by coming to the MSRB's EMA system and submitting their continuing disclosures and their event notices. Right. So technology is fundamentally intertwined with compliance and modernizing and upgrading it absolutely will have that kind of return on investment that, that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. The, there's an analogy that comes to my mind in thinking about Again, here it was kind of the, the cloud migration, moving the data and information to the cloud. But I'm just thinking about like, like even if you were a manufacturing company and you had widgets or something like that, right? But like you could picture if you were doing business previously in kind of a small room, right? Which was like all of where your data and information was stored. So you had just had boxes kind of piled up around you. And then now all of a sudden you move to the cloud you move to this much, much bigger room, um, it might be a little bit more expensive to move to that much bigger room, but you're not only gonna uh, be able to keep doing the stuff that you were doing before, now you've got a lot more room to innovate, a lot more room to look for new opportunities, a lot more room to do just more activity. Absolutely, and, and that's also something that's important to factor into, which we did into our business case and into that break-even calculation. Because if you're going to just look at dollars and cents, then the right way to do it, I think, is to compare apples to apples. So take your current state architecture and drop that into the cloud and don't expand, don't take advantage of new services, don't innovate, don't do more. If you were just to compare that, then I think the that cost savings argument becomes much more clear. And yes, you can probably run your infrastructure cheaper on, in the cloud than you can on premise. And so that makes sense. But you also have to factor in now that you're in the cloud, you can actually do more and you can leverage the power of cloud computing, take advantage of all these new services. So you may very well be spending more, but you're doing more and ultimately hopefully delivering greater value back to the industry and to your stakeholders. So I yeah. think that's really part of that long-term strategic vision of how are we going to leverage this investment and deliver value to the industry. And to that end, I thought I would talk about part two of our journey to the cloud. We, we talked about part one, which was migrating to the cloud, getting our data and getting our systems to the cloud. And now that we've successfully done that, Later this year, in fact, right now, um, we are launching uh, and initiating our second phase of our cloud journey, which is to modernize those systems in the cloud. And the, the best analogy that I can share about what does it mean to modernize a technology system is, is to give you a, um, analogy from, from my childhood experience, uh, growing up around the holiday times. And, um, at Christmas time, we would, uh, always decorate our tree. And, and, and in particular, we would wrap lights around our tree. And if your experience as, as a child was anything like mine, you might remember that when you took those lights, out of the closet from a year ago and wrap them around the tree, if one of the light bulbs in that string went out, the whole string blew out. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Okay, good. Then you'll your experience was like mine and you'll exactly understand now what I mean when I say we're going to modernize our technology systems. So as I walk through this, this analogy, envision our technology systems like that string of lights. That's a legacy system, and that is a legacy string of lights. The only way to fix that light light bulb or the string of lights was to go light bulb by light bulb, pull it out, put in a new one, and hope that you found the one that burned out. And as soon as you did, 
the whole string went back on. Well, that is how our technology systems were originally architected. And in technology speak, they are monolithic systems. They are tightly coupled and they are interdependent. And that was the architectural standard a decade ago of how you're supposed to build a technology system, these monolithic, tightly coupled, interdependent systems. Um, that is not how modern technology systems are architected in the cloud. And so we need to fundamentally redesign and re-architect our core technology systems to run in the cloud. And what happens today, in fact, with our technology systems is just like that string of lights. If you have an upstream failure of one component, you may very well trigger a cascading series of downstream failures that will take the system offline. And a modern technology system is architected around the principles of being loosely coupled and independent components. And so when you have a loosely coupled and independent system of technology components, what that means is that if one component goes down, the whole system will still stay up. Just like today's light bulbs, the string of lights today has a little circuit breaker in there. So even if one light bulb goes out, the whole string doesn't go out, just that light bulb goes out. So it's really easy, efficient, and cheap to go and figure out what broke, pull out that light bulb, and just put in a new light bulb instead of going light bulb by light bulb by light bulb and hoping to fix and find the one in the haystack that was broken. That is how we're going to redesign and re-architect our trade reporting systems and EMMA so that they are modern, they are loosely coupled, and they are independent components. And there aren't those dependencies that could bring down the system. That is how we're going to fundamentally improve system reliability, system availability, and cybersecurity. If there is, theoretically, a, a cybersecurity event, we can isolate the component and it'll be isolated to that component. And the other thing, by the way, that cloud computing allows us to do, which is really fascinating from a cybersecurity standpoint, is let's say that we have Emma up and running and um, uh, there is a some kind of a, a breach in our cybersecurity breach in our system. In the old days, when we were not in the cloud, we would have to sit there and 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 contain it, isolate it, remediate it, and uh, address that threat. In the cloud, we have the power of literally shutting down that entire instance of Emma. If Emma's compromised, we will shut it down and we will fire up a brand new instance of Emma in another part of the cloud. Wow. And it will be secure. And so that's part of the power of cloud computing and, and how you design a modern technology system. And that's the next phase that we just kicked off earlier this year, uh, having finished phase one of migrating to the cloud. Now we're starting phase two, which is modernizing those systems in the cloud. We expect this next phase is probably going to take our estimates, project estimates are, it's going to take us twice as long and probably cost us about twice as much as the cloud migration did. And as a reminder, the cloud migration took us two years and about seven and a half million dollars. We're expecting twice as long, three to four years and twice as much upwards of 15, 20 million dollars to modernize our technology systems. This is a massive investment by the MSRB in the future. And yeah. it will enable us, position us for the future as well as for today. Yeah. No, th thank you for that, for that additional context and, and background. And your, your analogy is a great one. It actually, it brings up, um, <laughs> it brings up uh, a few, uh, uh, albeit funny, maybe slash painful memories of my, uh, of my older brothers and sisters. I'm the youngest of five. And I do remember being a very young four or five years old and them making it seemed like that, that, uh, you know, game quote unquote, um, of like finding the light bulb and replacing it with a new one was <laughs> it, that, that it was in fact like a game and that I should do it. Like, as I'm sure my parents had asked them to do it and they instead just said, Hey, you know, Pat, this will be great. You'll love it. And then like, it took me probably a couple of years before I was like, this 
is not fun at all. <laughs> this is, this is in fact quite the opposite, but no, your points are well taken. And I can imagine that that type of upgrade right in the phase two, when you're re-architecting uh, the, the technology system is going to improve performance. It's going to improve, you know, the security, as you mentioned, and it's going to improve the stability of the system and, and the data involved. And I think that's a perfect segue because I know one of the other items that I would love to, to hear your thoughts on relate to kind of the MSRB's charge when it comes to uh, keeping and protecting the, the the data that it has. So maybe would love to hear a little bit of background on that and, and how the MSRB approaches that charge. Absolutely. And I feel that data is the future of our market and that data is the future of the MSRB serving as the industry's sole repository for data. That means that we own the market's data. So I think that the MSRB has a special responsibility as a steward of the market's data. And our focus in the coming years is going to be in two areas. The first is in improving the quality of the data that we have and leveraging the investments we're making on the technology side to help us improve the quality of the data that we have. And then secondly, we want to leverage that technology in order to allow market participants to extract value from the data that we have. And I think that's an important piece of what I view our mission to be around data. We're not just the repository of data. We're just not where you go to submit your data. We're, we are where you, you come to get your data. And our focus is on improving the quality of the data that you receive from the MSRB, as well as the value of the insights that you're able to get from that data. And in terms of improving the quality of the data that we have, this is a huge challenge for the municipal securities market. As, as you know, um, there is no standard setter for data in the municipal securities market. Neither the SEC nor the MSRB has the regulatory authority to mandate the substantive disclosures that are being made by state and local government issuers. As a result, most of that data that the MSRB receives is what's called unstructured data. And without getting too technical in data science, unstructured data really just means it's really tough to figure out what you have. And it's really tough to pull out any, extract any insight from that data. It's, it's, it's kind of like the data is, is wrapped in a nutshell. <laughs> and so what we are trying to do is crack that shell and improve the quality of the data and improve your ability to extract insight from it. And um, the way that we are trying to do that is to leverage technology to impose structure on the unstructured data that we have. And that structure is what allows you to run analytics on the data and to extract insight and, and, and information from that data. Um, you know, I think one, one caveat that I might just add is that as much promise as technology has to help improve the quality of the data, it is never going to be a substitute for better quality data at the outset. You know, there's almost no, you know, um, there's almost no substitute for having good quality data being submitted to the MSRB. No amount of technology is going to be able to uh, make that data perfect in and of itself. Sure. No, I, I think that's that's spot on. I, I also um, I like the analogy of of kind of you know having to to crack open the nut to 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 get to the the good data. It also makes me think like you know, of like unstructured data would be like if someone just handed you a bunch of clay, but like it wasn't in the shape of a pot yet, you know, and like, you know, it's just a big block of clay. Maybe it looks like a rectangle. Well, you understand that inside of that rectangle, you might be able to find a beautiful pot worth of really good data, but like it's going to take some work to get there. That's um, exactly right. That's a great yeah. analogy. That's right. So one, thank you again for adding that context. And I think the background on how the MSRB is approaching what are, I think some really just like 
key concepts that many market participants, even, I mean, certainly for all the municipal advisors, but really any of these other market participants are going to be thinking about how to upgrade their technology, thinking about cloud migration, how to protect and safeguard and extract the best possible data that they can use to help hopefully positively impact their firms. So I really appreciate you sharing all of that with with our listeners. That's it, been super informative. Well, I, I got a couple other kind of uh, maybe more quick hitter type uh, uh, questions for you. And then maybe we'll, we'll close out with, you know, something a little more fun. But I guess maybe one thing that might be, I, I think, great to kind of touch on, you know, are there uh, a two or three emerging compliance issues that you see as you as you look out across the horizon you know what's to come in the next you know 6 12 18 24 months are there are there two or three things that really stand out to you um that like we as an industry should should be keeping our eye on sure absolutely and and thank you for that question i think there are from a compliance officer standpoint a couple of emerging or even ongoing risks that are worth keeping our eyes on and just paying attention to. Let me just call them out as I see them. One relates to the impacts of the pandemic um, and and COVID-19. I think we're just starting to understand now some of the financial and operational repercussions to our economy of of what this pandemic may ultimately uh, do. And so for state and local government issuers, particularly with respect to the impacts of the pandemic on their finances and their operations. Um, I think it's important and worthwhile to keep in mind the continuing disclosure obligations for reporting any material impacts on an issuer's operations or on their finances as a result of the pandemic. You know, this is, we're not yet at the end of uh, the pandemic. And so this is an ongoing um, um, risk, but important, I think, from a compliance standpoint to remember the obligations that state and local government issuers have to their investors to um, disclose all material events. So that's certainly one that I think um, is an important issue that, that that should remain top of mind. There's another one that I'd like to call out as well, and that's the transition from LIBOR as a reference rate. Um, It is currently scheduled, LIBOR is currently scheduled to no longer exist December of 2021. So that's coming up at the end of this year. Because of the pandemic, there have been some conversations about uh, pushing back or maybe delaying the the cessation date of LIBOR. Um, So there's some uncertainty around when LIBOR is gonna cease to be a reference rate but I don't think that that should give anyone comfort that they don't need to continue to pay attention and continue to help clients understand that uh, this is a kind of a two-part risk that I think warrants paying attention to. One, many uh, clients may have legacy transactions that reference LIBOR. And so there's an ongoing um, concern with making sure that those contracts are updated and amended so that there's transition provisions or there's alternative reference rates that are amended into those legacy transactions. And then there's a prospective risk as well. And we understand anecdotally that clients are still entering into new LIBOR-based transactions. And that is something that compliance officers should also be focused on because with live knowing that LIBOR is going to end while there might be some uncertainty as to when it's going to end I don't think there's any uncertainty that it will end so knowing that knowingly entering into a new transaction with a reference rate that you know will no longer exist potentially over the life of that transaction, that raises some compliance concerns that, you know, certainly uh, compliance officers should 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 be focused on as well. And then if I may, I just wanted to raise one other final um, kind of emerging compliance issue that I think has has really risen to the top of many people's minds. And that's in the area of ESG investing. Um, environmental social governance investing. And that's 
been a trend in the municipal securities market with growing prominence and growing focus uh, by investors. And that has led to calls for greater disclosure around climate risks. And this is an area that has uh, certainly received the attention of the SEC and Congress, have held hearings and have uh, issued statements regarding climate risk and the disclosure of these risks to investors. And so I would um, urge compliance officers to be thinking about climate risks and disclosures related to climate risks as they may be appropriate uh, for for their clients. Yeah, that's, I think, a fantastic advice for for a lot of our listeners. I know on the prior episode, we we even did a deep dive on all of the different uh, statements, promulgations, remarks and feedback from different members of the SEC over uh, on the topic of ESG. And that was just over the last two months. <laughs> I mean, it was like, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, and, and again, that specific topic area is, uh, is really um, uh, tough to tackle. Uh, there's a lot going on. Um, people take different interpretations, but, but it's clearly something that is very important. Um, you know, to the SEC, very important to the MSRB, very important to the industry as a whole. And so I think, you know, practically speaking for those compliance officers out there, it's going to be worth their worth their time to to try to get educated on on the issue. Um, all right. Well, let's get you out of here with something a little more fun. Um, and again, uh, Mark, thank you so, so much uh, for your time today. It really has been uh, in- incredibly insightful to learn more uh, about the MSRB. But as we as we close out the show, what's one thing all of us continue to kind of uh, live and operate and work in, in uh, abnormal times, you know, challenging times? What's one thing that you are most looking forward to doing, or what's one thing that that you that you miss um, that that you're gonna get to do again when, say, all of the restaurant restrictions are lifted, when any of the travel restrictions are lifted? You know, like if you're just like, man, there's just I've been so looking forward to doing X Y Z again. What what would that thing be? Well, one thing for sure, I think, is just getting out of the house. Uh, <laughs> something that I'm really looking forward to. I think. <laughs> My wife and kids probably feel the same way. So, you know, I think we haven't been able to travel and visit family who live out of state and and we haven't sure. seen them in over a year. And so I think you Zoom is great and 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 you know, I love Zoom, but it only goes so far. I think you need that right. human connection and and I really miss just, you know, hanging out with friends and family and just being together. You know, I think they call it a virtual meeting for a reason. It's, it's, it's actually virtual. It's fake. It's not real. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I want a real meeting in person. And, you know, I, I've actually also am looking forward to going back to the office. I, I've actually never worked remotely in my entire career. This is the first time you know, certainly like if I've been traveling for work, I've worked out of a hotel or, or, or worked in a guest office for a day or two, but I've never actually worked remotely as part of my uh, job until this last year. And I've really come to appreciate some of the benefits of working re- remotely in terms of, you know, greater flexibility and so on and so forth. But I've also come to really miss working with colleagues together in the office. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just the other day, there was something that was just so frustrating for me that just showed the inefficient one example of the inefficiencies of working remotely that I look forward to being back together in the office. Uh, something just came up, you know, kind of unexpectedly. I wanted to reach a colleague of mine at the office. And if we were in the office, I would just get up and walk over to his office and pop my head in and say, Hey, X, Y, Z. And we could just have that quick conversation but instead, I, I sent him an email and said, hey, do you have time to hop on a quick call with me? And, you know, I waited 15 minutes and he responded back. Yes, I do. <laughs> and then I when when I finally got to his email, I wrote back. Great. I'm going to set up a I'm going to set up a time. And so I sent him a calendar invite with a Zoom link uh, for you know the time that we were both free on our calendars. And then we both got on the call and. 
by then half the you know like you lose something in in translation i think a hundred percent on both of your responses one i I, on the first one i couldn't agree more i'm very thankful i'm i'm very thankful and appreciative that just recently i was able to cross cross that threshold my my wife recently gave birth to our second daughter and for the first a few weeks of my youngest daughter's life my my wife's parents weren't weren't able to see her initially and everybody's vaccinated and so we've been able to have some of those meetings now which is great but yeah so i felt that like right away in that case and then on the other point which i'll I'll just uh, add on i couldn't agree with you more (laughs) in the sense that there is there is something in the creative process and and that especially like you know so i'm an attorney at calfi and we work with a lot of both senior i'm working with a lot of senior attorneys and younger attorneys and other folks at the firm and when you're working in that kind of a model and and that's a kind of apprenticeship based but really it would apply to any job there's all there's constant learning that's happening all the time there's constant conversations where i may get a call from a client on an urgent need and if i walk past the office of somebody who's also worked with that client before i can say hey come join me on this call versus i can't do that use if i like you said like oh i get a call from a client they want me to call them right away then i've got to send an email or i got to send a zoom invite and then like we got to set this whole thing up and it doesn't it can't it can't happen organically um so i couldn't agree more um mark thank you so so much for your time today truly it has been a pleasure very very uh interesting stuff happening at the msrb continued good luck and success with all the different initiatives that that you have going and uh, we look forward to having you back on the show here at some point thank you so much patrick and thanks again to nscp for hosting the podcast series this has really been a pleasure and i've really enjoyed our time together The final segment of today's show will be another edition of something we like to call outtakes. If compliance were a TV show, think of this as the bloopers reel, where we look at humorous, if not unsettling, activities carried out at financial services firms that hopefully provide us all with a roadmap of what not to do when facing a similar situation or trying to execute a similar compliance function inside our respective firms. Essentially, Leave these activities on the cutting room floor and outside your compliance program. And speaking of cutting room floor, we actually make our way out to Tinseltown itself for this particular installment of outtakes. The Securities and Exchange Commission recently announced that it obtained an asset freeze and other emergency relief in an emergency enforcement action against a Los Angeles-based actor and his company, One in MM Capital, or that's right, One in a Million Capital LLC, in connection with an alleged Ponzi scheme that raised over $690 million. From 2014 through 2019, the actor in One in a Million uh, allegedly told the investors that they were buying film rights purportedly to resell them to Netflix and HBO, when in fact, One in a Million had actually no business relationship with either company. And to quote what is arguably one of the best comedies of the 1990s, What was all that one in a million talk? According to the SEC complaint, the actor falsely claimed to have a track record successfully selling movie rights to Netflix and HBO when, in fact, they hadn't sold any movie rights or done any business with either, and that would seem to be a bit of a problem. The actor allegedly showed investors fabricated agreements and emails regarding the purported deals. He promised returns in excess of 35%. Seems pretty aggressive. For And for many years, uh, supposed paid supposed returns on earlier investments using funds from the, the new investments. He also misappropriated investor funds for his personal use, because why stop at, you know, just the regular Ponzi scheme kind of stuff, um, which included the purchase of his multi-million dollar home, trips to Las Vegas, and to uh, uh, $700,000 to pay a celebrity interior designer, which I think once again proves I really got into the wrong business and going to law school was a terrible mistake, but I digress. The bottom line here is that we can't believe everything we see in here, and we need to make sure to educate investment professionals, and certainly our investment professionals need to educate their clients to that effect, 
And as compliance officers and legal practitioners, we must have our antennas way up when it comes to stuff like this. As your mother used to tell you, if it's too good to be true, probably is. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Mark Kim, for coming on the show today to discuss what's new at the MSRB and how their focus on technology and data is helping to move our industry forward. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance in Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Or go to ComplianceInContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. And a happy belated Mother's Day to all the moms out there, especially you, Mrs. Hayes. 